Amen. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 21, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 15. Acts chapter 21 says this, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patura, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and Sarah said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Patalmes, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. The next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these things, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyrus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Well, we've all heard stories, fairy tales, Disney movies, where... A heroine will face different obstacles, and then you get to the end, and it says they lived happily ever after. It's come to be the perfect bookend for any Disney movie, any children's story. And yet, if we look at the kind of the origins of many of the fairy tales that we're familiar with, oftentimes the themes and even the endings are much darker and much sinister than the stories that Disney has told us. Naomi Zacharias, the director of Wellspring International, suggests that the modern versions of these stories often skim over the hardships of life so can, they can jump right to the, about, about the, the part about living happily ever after. She suggests that the original stories were honest about the pains and struggles of life. For example, she says Cinderella was first orphaned, then enslaved, before she tried on the glass slipper that changed her world. She also says in the traditional story of Sleeping Beauty, a fairy who was not invited to a party for the baby's birth put a curse on Sleeping Beauty, namely that at the age of 16 she would prick her finger and die. A good fairy changed the curse so that the Sleeping Beauty didn't die. Instead, she was placed in a deep sleep, only to be awakened by the kiss of a prince. But even then, Sleeping Beauty slept for a hundred years before she arrived at Happily Ever After. In the meantime, her family and friends mourned, and her mother died of a broken heart. The author of the original fairy tale, The Brothers Grimm, concluded the original story with these honest words. 
They lived happily ever after, as they always do in fairy tales. Not quite so often, however, in real life. Zacharias concludes this. She says, we want the good part of the fairy tale. We've only preserved the idea of happily ever after. On the movie screen and in our minds, we have rewritten the stories and forgotten about the battles the heroines chose to fight. We've chosen to overlook the pain and the price that the players pay to find love and justice. The notion of living happily ever after on this side of eternity doesn't exist. It's a smokescreen. And yet the stories we tell in our culture tell us if we do the right things, then we'll arrive at a happy ever after. That we'll be satisfied, we'll be content, and live a life of ease. And so we take that kind of narrative and we apply it to our own lives and we try to do the right things and then maybe we look to a spouse or a career or a child or a number of other things to be our happy ever after then ultimately we end up disappointed and disillusioned. Philosopher Joshua Loth Liebman says this, and they lived happily ever after is one of the most tragic sentences in literature. It's tragic because it tells a falsehood about life and has led countless generations of people to accept, expect something from human existence which is not possible on this fragile, fragile imperfect earth. The happy ending obsession of Western culture is both a romantic illusion and a psychological handicap. So we look at this passage, if there's anyone who ever did the right things, it was the, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, in essence, the Christian par excellence. As we look at his life, he had so much dedication, so much love for the Lord, so much determination, so much perseverance. And when I think about Paul's life and I think about maybe turning the corner towards the end of his life, I imagine the way that it should end would be maybe the churches get together in the area and they throw a big banquet for Paul. Maybe give him the meritorious service award for all of his work among the churches. That they honor him for his contributions to the church. But that's not how Paul's story ends. We see in this passage and the passage before chapter 20, a truly tragic scene. That Paul's, Paul's, the end of his life is going to end, in a sense, tragically. Chapter 20, we see this heart-wrenching scene as Paul tells the Ephesian elders who, have been, who he'd been investing in, that he had to leave, and that they would not see his face again. He prays with them, and it tells us in the text that there was much weeping and sadness. They embraced Paul and kissed him. In chapter 21, which, reversed, which, which, which we just read in verse 1, it says, when we had parted from them, it said sail. The word for parted is, is the word in the Greek, that one Greek dictionary translated as to tear oneself apart. That as he's leaving the Ephesian elders, he literally has to tear himself away from them. And you think about this scene in the Ephesians, and they're probably pleading with him, Paul, don't go. Of course, Paul has told him that he's not going to see them again. This would, this would be their last goodbye. And they're saying, don't go, Paul. Tell us this isn't true. Tell us this isn't so. Tell us that we're going to see you again. And yet Paul has to go. Paul tears himself away from them. He leaves. When he gets to Tyre, he's on his way to Jerusalem. When he gets to Tyre, it says in the text that there were disciples of Jesus who prophesied through the Holy Spirit and told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
Paul says, I, I gotta go. Then we see another heart-moving scene as all of the people, it says that the whole family, men, women, children, follow Paul and his companions outside of the city and then they get down and pray on the beach for Paul and his companions. Then he leaves, goes to Ptolemy's, then to Caesarea, and then in Caesarea, a man named Agabus, a prophet from Judea, comes and he describes how Paul is going to be bound by the Jews in the, into the hands of the Gentiles. Once again, Paul's friends and disciples try to persuade him. They say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul again says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. See, I believe that Paul's friends and disciples truly cared for him. They truly loved him. They truly wanted the best for him. They truly wanted to, him to live happily ever after. And that's why as we look at this scene, I believe that there's one prophecy that God gives to all three of these groups of people. He gives the same prophecy to Paul, to Agabus, and then to the disciples entire. And that prophecy is that Paul is going to experience intense suffering in Jerusalem. Now, Agabus and the disciples, they see that. They know that God has spoken and decreed that. And so they're like, you got to avoid that at all costs. Don't go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul, on the other hand, he knows what's ahead of him. It says it in, verse, in chapter 20. He knows that sufferings are ahead of him, and yet he chooses to go anyways. He's going to have to do some hard things. He's going to have to say goodbye. He's going to have to experience intense suffering. But he's also going to experience some of the most fruitful ministry of his whole career. Now we're kind of turning the corner at the end of his life, but he's got a, a few years left, and he's got some very influential ministry left. He's going to have the opportunity to, to preach the gospel before a number of different rulers, before Jews, before Gentiles, before sailors, all different types of people. Perhaps his, the greatest influence he's ever had is going to happen in these few years near the end of his life. But again, it causes him to do some hard things. As his friends are urging him not to go to Caesarea, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Paul's heartbroken that he has to leave. And just as an aside, sometimes our loved ones who want the best for, for us can sometimes even prevent us from doing God's will or deter us from doing God's will. Because our friends and loved ones, they want the best for us. They want us to live happily ever after. They don't want us to experience difficulty and hardship. But sometimes that's the plan that God has for us. God calls each and every one of us to do hard things for him. And each and every one of us are called to walk through times of pain and suffering. Consider the things that Jesus told to his disciples. In Luke 14, 26-27, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Of course, when Jesus is saying that, he's not saying that we should literally hate our family members, but he's saying that our love for God should be so great that in comparison, our love for others seems like hate. It's not, a, not an easy thing to do to have that kind of love for God. Matthew 5, 43 to 44 
Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not an easy thing to do. Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. That seems reasonable. That seems more than generous. But Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or some translation, 70 times seven. It's not an easy thing to do to forgive someone over and over and over again. But that's what God calls us to do. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. God calls us to do difficult things. And in this passage we see God calling Paul to do difficult things. He's going to have to walk through a time of intense suffering. And Paul knows what's coming and he chooses to follow the will of God anyways. Thuicides once said this, The bravest are surely those who have the dearest vision of what is before them. Glory and danger alike. And yet notwithstanding, go out to meet it. He knows what's coming, and yet he goes out and experiences that suffering. But as we look at this story and we look at the, the idea that there is suffering in the lives of believers, how do we go forward in the midst of that? How do we gain motivation to persevere even though we know there's suffering ahead of us? Well, I think Paul shows us three things in this passage and, and in his ministry about how he perseveres in the midst of difficulty. The first thing he shows us is that he believes in a happy ever after, but it's not in this life, it's in the life to come. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8, Paul says this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. So Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I'm going and headed towards the reward. Philippians 1, 21 to 24, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in my flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So for those who believe in Jesus, there is a happy ever after. The, that's the reality that these stories in our culture point towards is this reality when there won't be any suffering or pain but we're not going to find it in romantic relationship or a career or family or whatever that may be it's only found in christ and it only comes to fruition after we die in the next life one day god will come back and he will make every wrong right he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will make each day better than the last C.S. Lewis in his famed, famed uh, Chronicles of Narnia ends the entire series in his last book, The Last Battle, this way. He ends it and says this, And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, 
which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. C.S. Lewis says this life, it's just the cover, just the title page. The glory is coming later. We're headed for a world where each day is better than the last. And so we can persevere in the midst of suffering. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's a runner by the name of Marla Runyon. And what's interesting about Marla running is that she is legally blind. And yet she was able to make it to the Olympics in 2000. And she actually qualified for the 1500 meter race uh, in the finals, and she ended up uh, finishing eighth, just a few seconds behind the medal winner, winners. And what she does is she's able to, she can't see in color, but she can just kind of see kind of blobs and figures. And so as she's running, she just kind of looks ahead of her and just sees the other runners running and just tries to follow them. But she describes the final stretch as being the most difficult. She says, she told a reporter this, racing towards a finish line that I cannot see, that I can't see. I just know where it is. She says she's racing towards a finish line I can't see. I just know where it is. As believers, I think the same thing is true for us. We can't see the finish line, but we know where it is. We know that it's a time when we're spent forever with God in a perfect new heaven and new earth can't see the reward ahead of us, but we know where we're headed. We know that we'll get there. And so that's the first motivation that Paul uh, has, that he believes in a happy ever after. The second motivation is he's compelled by the love of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, and he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, we see throughout Paul's ministry that he has an intense love for God and intense love for other people. I mean, you can just see the relationships that he's formed with the Ephesian elders and those entire and his disciples there. They just had such a love for him because of the investment that he had made in them. And he demonstrates Christ's love to them. And he was driven and compelled by that love. And see, when we're compelled by love, there's nothing that's too great for us. I remember before I uh, became a parent, children kind of scared me. They kind of freaked me out. You know, and I thought about this idea of children, and you think about, you know, runny noses, coughing, even a little bit more scary now with COVID-19. I, told, I was told stories about, you know, kids that, you know, keep their parents up all night, you know, and I met parents who are, you know, just, just raggled because they're so tired, the kids are staying up all night, and you think about this idea of changing dirty diapers, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to change a stinky, dirty diaper, you know, and you think about the money, the monetary investment that's involved, you know, it just costs a lot to have a child, and then I became a father, and suddenly, I saw it a lot different. Suddenly, changing a diaper didn't mean anything to me. It just became second nature. Spending money on the child, it was just part of the 
course because my love for him overrode any other element or any other negative part about that. You never get to a point where you like dirty diapers or like staying up all night. But it's manageable because of your love for the child. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. We never get to a place where suffering is easy, where we enjoy suffering. Nobody, nobody wants to experience hard things. But it's manageable because of our love for God and love for other people. And so we see in Paul's life that he's able to endure the most terrible circumstances, things that we'll never have to experience because of his love for God and love for other people. So he's compelled by the love of God. The final motivation that we see is that Paul looks to the example of his Savior, Jesus Christ, who walks with us through suffering. Jesus is the ultimate example of perseverance in the midst of difficulty. Jesus knew why he had come to the earth. He knew he had come to the earth to suffer and to die for all humanity. And rather than choosing to go to return to the glories of heaven, he could have called down 10,000 angels at any moment. He chose to stay. He chose to endure suffering out of love for God and love for other people. He, he did this because he was looking to a happy ever after. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, it says that he was doing it for the joy that was set before him. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' happy ever after was that the Father would be glorified, we would be saved, and we could spend forever in relationship with him. He loved us so much that he was willing to die. Love compelled him. Love drove him to the cross. And whenever we're suffering, whenever we need extra motivation to persevere, we only need to look to the cross and the sacrifice that was made for us. During World War II, there was a British commander that was preparing to bring his troops into battle. But the troops were demoralized. They had just come off a furlough. It was uh, rainy, muddy, cold. They were terrified about the prospect of heading into battle and possible death. Nobody talked. Nobody said anything. It was a very somber scene. And then there, as they were marching, they went by a bombed-out church. And the commander looked up and saw in the back of the bombed-out church a statue of Jesus on the cross. And from that statue, he gained purpose and motivation. He remembered the Savior who had died and persevered for him. As the troops marched along, he shouted, Eyes right, march. Every eye turned to the right. And as soldiers marched by, they saw Christ on the cross. Pastor Gordon Johnson says of this, Something happened to that company of men. Suddenly they saw triumph after suffering, and they took courage. With shoulders straightened, they began to smile as they went. We need motivation to persevere in the midst of suffering. We need only to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
But not only is he our example, but he also promises to walk with us. He promises in Hebrews that he'll never leave us or forsake us. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, it says, When you will pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. So Paul looks to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who walks with us through pain and suffering. And so like Paul, we cannot shrink from suffering. The unfortunate reality of life is that we will all experience difficulty and hardship in this fallen world. But as believers, we must walk forward in obedience, even if there's a significant cost involved. But we, as we do so, we can be strengthened in our resolve as we look to a happy ever after. As we're compelled by the love of God. See, the road to a happy ending is marked by suffering, and yet we can persevere because of the future that is before us and the love that sustains us. The road to a happy ending is marked by suffering, but we can persevere because of the future that is before us and the love that sustains us. Many years ago, about 60 years ago, there was a man by the name of Morris Plotz, and Morris Plotz was talking to his friend named J.W. Tucker, J.W. Tucker was a missionary, and he uh, was planning to go to the Congo and share, the, share Christ in the Congo. Problem was, the Congo at this time was rife with civil war, a very dangerous place to go. Morris Plotz pleaded with his friend and said, don't go. If you go, you'll never come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't call me to come out. He called me to go in. So he ended up going into the Congo, and sure enough, on November 24, 1964, he was beaten severely along with 60 uh, of his fellow Christians, and they were thrown into the Bomakandi River that was invested by, uh, infested by crocodiles. After that, one of his disciples, the people he had led to the Lord, who was referred to as the brigadier, wanted to reach his country for the Lord. And so he started sharing the gospel with those in his country. But there was very little response. Then he remembered an old legend. A legend among the Megiddo people, uh, Megbedo people. And this legend went this way, which had been told for ages. If the blood of any man flows in the Bomakandi River, you must listen to his message. The brigadier called for the king and all the village elders. They gathered together in a full assembly. And he spoke to them and said, Some time ago a man was killed. His body was thrown into your Bomakandi River. He said, The crocodiles in this river ate him up. His blood flowed in your river, but before he died, he left me a message. He said, This message concerns God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to save people who were sinners. He died for the sins of the world, he died for my sins. I received this message. And it changed my life. As Brigadier preached, God's spirit moved upon the people. Many people gave their life to Christ. And many churches ended up being opened up. And it was all because of the sacrifice of J.W. Tucker. He knew the cost that was involved. He knew that he might not come out alive. And yet he followed God's calling for his life anyways. He looked to the reward. And he was compelled by the love of God. The road to a happy ending, it's marked by suffering, but we can persevere because of the future 
that is before us and the love that sustains us. May we have the heart of the Apostle Paul who told the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, that you didn't shrink even from the prospect of death, knowing that you would experience intense suffering and pain, that you chose to persevere so that we might have life, so that we might have joy in you. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we know that this life you've told us involves suffering. You've told us in this world we'll face trials of many kinds. But we know that you've overcome the world. We know that there is a future of joy waiting for us. And we know that your love has been poured out on our hearts. So give us the strength. Give us the courage to walk forward and to follow your plan, even if it takes us to a place of suffering. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.